All right. We are, for the people that are listening now online, uh, we're going to be jumping into Ephesians 2, and we will be covering, well, at least reading and trying to begin to cover verses 1 through 10. But we won't get there just yet, because I want to expand a little bit more on a topic of discussion that we had in our last study. Uh, this will, like I said, for those of you that were here before we started recording, this will be a great help as we move into the beginning of chapter 2. I want to look again and go into a little bit deeper into the subject of God's control in the world and its effects on man's choice. Now, we saw last week that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 22, and it says, And he put all things under his feet, meaning Jesus, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We saw last week, or not last week, but last time we were together in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so we need to understand that all authority has been given to Jesus. He has it already. He's not waiting to get all authority. He has it now. But we also saw, as we looked at Hebrews 2, we're not going to go back there, that the Hebrew writer said that even though all things are placed under his feet, we don't yet see everything under his control. I mean, there are things that are still under the control of Satan. He's been given some authority for a time. Uh, we're still given the ability to choose, and we're allowed to make choices that aren't usually his first choice. And so we're going to deal tonight with this topic a little bit more deeply because in order for us to move into Ephesians 2, when we start taking a look at how the scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive, there are those out there that will try to take that passage and they'll say that since you were dead, you couldn't do anything and God's the only one who did it all and your salvation was all done by God and you had no say. And so in order to really understand that, I think we need to continue in our discussion from last time and really take a look at the fact of, well, there's a balance that we need to wrestle with. There's a tension in the scripture between the sovereignty of God and the free will or the man's ability to choose. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to kind of lay out for you some scriptural truths. And then I'm going to show you what I mean from a, a bunch of scripture passages that I want you to kind of lay as a foundation that will help you interpret other passages correctly. All right. So we've already seen there is nothing outside of God's control. Correct. If all authority has been given to him, everything's under his feet. There is nothing that is outside of his control, even though he is not visibly controlling everything. In essence, it's still under his control. In other words, there's no one who could supersede or no being, no anything that can supersede God. He can't say, well, you tied my hands or anything. He has all control. All right. Yet, in some extent, he's not exercising that full control as we talked about. And we'll get to more of that in a bit. So what do the scriptures tell us that help us with this issue and help us strike the proper balance? Here's the first thing I want you to write down, and we're going to lay this out. God's full authority and control does not totally remove man's ability to choose. I'm going to say that again, and there's more to this. God's full authority and control does not totally remove man's ability to choose, nor his or her responsibility to choose, and the consequence of those choices. Let me read this to you again. God's full authority and control does not totally remove man's ability to choose, nor his or her responsibility to choose, and the consequences of those choices. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we'll begin to look at this from the scripture, uh, beginning here in Deuteronomy 30. I want to point out to you something. Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verses 15 through 20. See, there are those that say the sovereignty of God means that man doesn't really have a choice. That God's in full control and man has no say. And I want to show you from Scripture, in more than just one place, that the Bible has never taught that. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20, God is speaking and He says, See, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. Look at the next verse. What's the first word? If. Highlight the word if. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. That's an important word. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, 
but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. Look at what God said to the nation of Israel. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm laying before you a choice. You've got a choice. If you choose to obey me, there'll be blessing. If you choose not to, there'll be curses. There'll be consequences. Listen closely. If the sovereignty of God, if the definition of the sovereignty of God or God's full control means that man does not have a choice, there can be no if. Do you understand what I'm saying? In order for there to be an if, there has to be a choice. If God's sovereignty simply means that God's in full control and God's gonna, what God's gonna do, God's gonna do, and man doesn't have a say, and the fatalistic, it doesn't matter, God's already got it all laid out, and no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches, because all the way through scripture, God has been saying to us, if you go this way, this. If you go that way, that. You have a choice. Go with me to Joshua chapter 24. You're in Deuteronomy, just go over to Joshua chapter 24. Look at verses 14 and 15. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Joshua now is speaking, and he says, Therefore fear the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if, if, it is, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites who, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, again, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's laid out. You've got a choice. It's foolish to tell somebody that God's sovereignty may, means you don't have a choice. When all through Scripture, the Bible shows us that God has given us choice. That's more than, we're going to go to more places. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here again, we see even after salvation, after the foundation of faith in Jesus has been laid, we still got a choice. We're either going to live for the Lord and let him work through us and he'll reward us in eternity. Or we don't live for the Lord. We're still going to be saved because salvation's a gift. But the reward, it's up to us whether or not we're going to be rewarded for eternity. Whether we're going to be obedient to God or disobedient to God. You have a choice. All the way through scripture, folks, you will see. I could take hours and show you all the way through how all the time the Bible says you have a choice. Don't fall prey to those who say God's sovereignty means you don't have a choice. You do. Let me show you one more example. Go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, look at verses 37 through 39. This is as Jesus finished riding into Jerusalem on the, on the day that, uh, that we call Palm Sunday. And at the end of that ride into Jerusalem, he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's something in here that I don't want you to miss. There's actually a couple of things. One, did the Israelites, did the Jews have a choice? Yes, they did. Jesus himself said, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. It wasn't that you weren't chosen. No, you chose not to believe. Now, there's a couple other things in here, though, that I don't want you to miss, because we could run into the free will ditch. You got your predestined ditch and your Calvinistic type sovereignty of God ditch which says that it's all been under God's control and man has no say, that's a ditch that you don't want to get in because that's not biblical. But you also can run to the other side and say, since man has been given a choice, man can choose whenever and however he wants. And you can't go there. Because I'm going to show you, here's the second thing. Man's ability to choose does not remove or supersede God's control. See, because there are those who would say, well, Jim, if you're going to be one of these free, free will people and you believe that man has a choice, then if man is, has a free will, God is not sovereign. They say that man, if man is able to choose, God is not in control. That's what they say. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Because I'm going to show you that, remember, everything's under his feet. All authority's been given to him. He's in full control, even though he's not exercising that full control, or we don't see him exercising that full control. God still controls how much free choice you have and when it stops. I'm going to show you that the Bible teaches there comes a point where God will say, you don't have the ability to choose anymore. I gave it to you for a time. Now I shut that door. Look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He goes, you guys had a choice. I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers my chicks, but you weren't willing. Now it's too late. Now it's too late. And he's talking to the nation of Israel. All right. Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. Go with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Look at verses 31 through 43. In John 12, verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him and said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the... the uh, so it remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you walk, sorry, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's given them that choice still. This is prior to that time we already read earlier in Matthew where he said it's too late. He says, look, you got a choice. You better respond while you have the choice. But now look at what it says next. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so, done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, look what it says next, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah says in another place, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Then it goes on and says, nevertheless, many even among the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, there's a lot here, and I want you to stick with me. God is in full control. There's nothing that can take control over God. All right. That's clear, understandable. Yet his full control is not being exerted to the point that he's controlling everything like a puppet, man has been given the ability to say yes and no to his offers, to choose whether or not they're going to obey him or disobey him, receive his salvation, reject his salvation. We've been given choice after salvation to decide whether or not we're going to let him live through us or whether or not we're going to live for the flesh. Yet, don't run to the ditch of saying, well, since man's able to choose, God's not in control. Oh, no, 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 no. 
God's still in very much control. And as we just saw here, there comes a point where God says, I gave you opportunities to respond. Now I'm shutting the door. Now, I'm going to lay this out for you in much more detail in a second. But look again at what he said here in, in chapter 12. He said they would not believe. Isaiah said that was going to happen. And then because of that, there came a point where then they could not believe because he then blinded their eyes so that they couldn't see. Now, the best way I can illustrate this to you is in Exodus chapter 7 all the way through Exodus chapter 11. Now, get a little highlighter or a marker or get a piece of paper and write fast. But I'm going to walk you through these chapters from Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 11. And I want to show you an interesting study about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And in this, you're going to start to see something that was there in John, but I didn't bring it out yet because it'll become clear in this part that adds to this whole discussion that is why this gets confusing for some. Hopefully it won't be for you tonight. In chapter 7 of Exodus, starting in verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Look closely. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. All right. Then he says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. Now look closely at what God says. He says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Please don't run too fast, too far. I want to show you that, yes, God did at a certain point harden Pharaoh's heart where he could not respond. But it wasn't right away. It was only after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart for a while. And then at a certain point, you're going to see a transition where the scripture clearly teaches Pharaoh had the ability to say yes or no at the beginning. God already knew what Pharaoh's choices were going to be. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. So keep that in the back of your mind. And that's why God could say ahead of time at a certain point, I'm going to harden his heart and you will be get set free out of Egypt. Go down at the end of chapter or sorry, not the end of chapter seven. Go low to verse uh, 13. This is after they threw their st staff down and the magicians threw theirs down and Aaron's staff actually swallowed all the other snakes. Look at verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Look closely. God's not hardening Pharaoh's heart yet. Pharaoh's heart is hardened on its own. He would not listen to them. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. All right. Now jump down to verse uh, 22 of chapter 7. We're not going to take the time to get into all the different things that happened. Verse 22, though, says the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his own house, and he did not take even this to heart. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart right now? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart's hard all on its own. All right. Chapter 8. Go to verse 15. It gets even more clear. In case you're saying, well, Jim, it doesn't really say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, look at verse 15 of chapter 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. And would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart here? Pharaoh is. Who's making the choice to say no? Pharaoh. Who's rejecting what God's clearly doing in these miracles? Pharaoh. Go to chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God knew that was going to be the way it was. All right. Jump in chapter 8 to verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Who hardened his heart? Pharaoh. And he did not let the people go. Go to chapter 9 and look at verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Still on Pharaoh. Now an interesting thing happens in chapter 9, verse 12, though. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. It says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This time God acts. Stick with me. 
Go to verse 34 of chapter 9. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So here in this instance, on this one other time, God hardens his heart in that instance. But then God gives him one more chance. And you're going to see he's only got this one last chance. Go, go ahead. It's very interesting that he says he sinned again. Yes. The disobedience, pardoning your heart against God is sin. It is sin. It's sin. And so here God hardened his heart, yet God released that and gave him one more choice. And in this instance here in chapter 9, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart and he and his main servants. Listen closely. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then verse chapter 10, verse 1, it can't get any more clear. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Go to chapter 10, verse 20. And by the way, I'm not skipping any of these places that talk about the hardening of the heart of, of Pharaoh. You can double check. But in verse 20 of chapter 10, it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart now? God is. Look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 10. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Chapter 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Folks, in this study, I want you to see something. Don't fall into the ditch of thinking that God's sovereign control means you don't have a choice. Don't listen to anybody that tells you that. That's not biblically true. You do have a choice. God has put the Bible full of ifs. And there's no if if you don't have a choice. Yet, don't run into the other ditch of thinking, hey, I can choose whenever I want to. Uh-uh. Remember, all things under his control. And the Bible actually teaches, we saw it in John 12, they did not believe, therefore they could not believe. Because God said, okay, now I'm shutting the door. And so here's now another aspect, though, of this. We saw back at the beginning of chapter 7, God says, I'm going to. Let me tell you how this is all going to play out. Remember, God's outside of time. He sees the whole picture. And he says, I know what's going to happen. I know what choices Pharaoh's going to make. And I'm going to work with that. And there's going to come a point where I'm just going to make it so that, okay. Well, we see it in Romans chapter 1, don't we? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Go there real quick. Go to Romans chapter 1 and look at verses 18 and following. You'll see this, the same topic that we're looking at here, illustrated very clearly. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the body, their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And there it goes on. Look closely at what it's saying here. 
that God revealed himself to all men. He's made clear his divine nature, his eternal power through creation and many other ways and the spirit going out into the world to draw people, to give them this choice. But they chose to reject it and then God says, knock yourself out. You're on your own. Because folks, remember what we've looked at and we're gonna remind you of it a little later tonight. No one can come to the Father unless what? The Spirit draws them first. If God says, you've had your opportunity, I'm not going to draw you anymore, you're done. Oh, by the way, for us Christians, we don't have to worry about that in the sense of losing salvation. No, no, no. But listen, does not the Bible also teach that for Christians who continue to walk in disobedience, that the Spirit of God lovingly pursues us for sanctification and repentance and confession? But if we choose to ignore that, the Bible says you don't lose your salvation, but the Bible does teach he may come take you home early. So please understand where we're going here today. God has all control. There's nothing outside of his control. Is he controlling everything like a puppet right now? No, he's given man the ability to choose. Yet, don't think that you can choose whenever and however you want, because God controls when your choice is over. What the limits are, and none of us know what that is. Only God knows. And that's why we must respond to his offers of grace. Now, at the same time, and this is where it gets confusing for some, does God know how you're going to choose? Does that mean you don't have a choice? No, you still do. And as I'll say to you a little bit later in our notes, God already knows how you're going to choose. You don't. So choose right. Right? We don't know how we're going to choose. God knows. But I tell you what, since I have a choice still, I'm going to choose right. Hopefully you will as well. And so... I want to show you what I'm talking about in this whole idea of God already knowing how it's going to play. He, even though he gives us free will and he gives us this choice, God already knows how we're going to choose. And that doesn't mean you don't have the ability to choose. But go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. First Samuel chapter eight, verses one through nine, it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And look at what God says. He says, look, they they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And they've been doing that from the day that I brought them out of Egypt. They've been going after other gods and, ser and serving them. Um, Tell you what, they've made a choice, listen to them, let them get their way. Now, they're going to receive the consequences of this choice. They want to make the choice, let them. But understand something, um, this hasn't caught me by surprise, Samuel. I not only knew that this was happening because they've been doing it since I brought them into Egypt. Samuel, you may not have known this because you weren't there. But way back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, I said this was going to happen. Go to Deuteronomy 31. Keep a bookmark here in 1 Samuel 8. And go with me to Deuteronomy 31. And look at verses 14 through 22. If you've not taken the time to look at the end of Deuteronomy and look at what God says to the nation of Israel, and he tells them when he offers them blessings and curses, he actually gives them their whole history 
He tells them, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then you're going to make this choice, and then that's going to happen, but I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to scatter you, and then I'm going to bring you back, and then I'm going to scatter you to all the nations, and in the very, very end, I'll bring you back, and I'm going to make you jealous through people who aren't even a people. And it's amazing if you take the time to look at it. But in Genesis 31, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 31, verses 14 through 22, look at what God's saying here. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And now, then he goes, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when my evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring." For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the song just tells them, watch out and obey God or else. Now listen, look at what God says. This is before they even go into the promised land. He says, oh, they're going to reject me. They're going to go after foreign gods. And I know. Did the people have a choice? Sure they did. But God's foreknowledge, if you will, doesn't remove our responsibility for our choices and the consequences for our choices. And so we need to become people, as you've heard me teach over the years, we need to be faithful to the balance of Scripture. Don't run to one extreme or to the other. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean you don't have a choice. You have a choice, but that doesn't mean that God lets you do whatever, whenever, however, no, there comes a point where God uses that control that he has and he says your opportunity's over. And here's the hard part for us. God already knows which way you're going to go. Remember Peter? He said, I don't know about the rest of these people, but I'll die for you. I'll go to prison and death. And Jesus says, actually, no. But that same Jesus also later on met up with him after his resurrection and said, hey, remember the guy who told me he'd die for me? You will. And here's how you'll die for me. And so, folks, the hard part for us is if we if we understand Scripture, God already knows. Folks, if he didn't know how it was all going to play out, he couldn't write the end of the book. He couldn't tell us how it's all going to play out. He already knows. That doesn't mean that you don't have a choice. And we just got to grasp this and leave it alone. God knows what choices you're making, and he's actually orchestrated all of time according to that, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows who's the next president. He knows when the rapture's going to occur. He knows all this stuff. What are we to do in the midst of this? Try to figure it all out? No. We are to be obedient and to choose life. We're to listen to what he says and understand that either as a believer or an unbeliever, when we've got this opportunity to choose to obey him and to receive his offers of grace, we need to respond now while we have the opportunity. This one person said, I don't really care to know when I die. I don't have to know when I die. I just need to know where so I can avoid that place. <laughs> now, just understand that you have a choice and God already knows what it'll be. Now, keep that in mind. This will help us. Now we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 2. That only took us 36 minutes. Not bad. <laughs> Ephesians 2. Listen to verses 1 through 10 now. Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature objects of children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the com coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we're going to spend the rest of tonight and next week when we come back together to in this section here. But what I want to do is I want to deal with this aspect of Paul saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and that God made us alive. Again, like I told you, there are those who have taken this passage and they have, because they've got a wrong definition of the sovereignty of God, they say that since we were dead in our sins, a dead person can't do anything. They say, they use this illustration. They said, if you've got a dead body laying on a mortuary slab, that dead body cannot respond. If it's going to come alive, it doesn't have a choice. Someone has to give it life. Now, what I want to talk to you about is the problem with that illustration is it doesn't match up with Scripture. And second of all, even though it makes sense in human analogies, it actually has been using the wrong definition of dead. I want to show you the biblical definition of dead. When the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, I want you to see what the Bible means when it says dead. See, I got an email from this one lady this past week, and she was in a Bible study, and she, they were dealing with the fact that because of Adam, all have died, and sin has passed on, and we're spiritually dead. And she then sends me this email and says, well, I, I don't know if that's right. Because Psalm 139 said that God said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and he knit me in my mother's womb. He wouldn't have made me spiritually dead. No, I couldn't have already be dead because of Adam. I had to become dead at the, and I had to spend some time explaining to her. She misunderstood the definition of dead as well. So in order for us to really deal with this, we need to know what dead means. All right. So go to James chapter 2. And look at verse 26, James chapter 2, verse 26, and let's get our biblical definition of dead. And then I'm going to prove to you, not just from one verse. Remember, you don't just use one verse to build your doctrine. You've got to make sure it matches the whole of Scripture. And we're going to take a look at other places as well. James chapter 2, verse 26. And here in the section that James is dealing with uh, the evidence of our faith being demonstrated by our actions, he makes this interesting statement in verse 26. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, keep in mind what he said here. He said, Your body dies when your spirit is separated from it. Correct? Now, let me ask you a question. When your spirit separates from your body in what we call physical death, is your spirit still alive? Yes. Yeah. Actually, everybody's spirit is alive in that sense. I mean, even those who are spiritually dead, when they die and their spirits leave their body and they die physically, death, remember again, the word death means a separation. Even those who are spiritually dead, when they physically die and their spirit is separated from their body, that spirit is still alive in the sense that that spirit is going to be recognizing that they're in hell and they're going to be experiencing that for eternity. Folks, everybody lives forever. You do realize that, right? It's just the issue of whether it's smoking or non-smoking. All right. Everybody lives forever. So listen closely to what I just said to you. People who spiritually were dead when they die, their spirits are in one essence still alive. Right. Dead doesn't mean you're laying on a slab. Dead just simply means a separation. When you physically die, your spirit is separated from your physical body. When you are spiritually dead, your spirit, which is still alive in the sense that you are a living being, is just separated from who? God. Is your spirit alive? Yes, it's still alive in the sense that you are a living spirit. Your soul and a spirit, you're alive in that sense. Death, dead just simply means you're separated from God. 
So don't let someone tell you, well, if you're dead, you can't do anything. Uh, dead just means separated. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 11. Jesus actually illustrates this talking to Martha when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he uses this term in a couple of ways to show us there's a difference between spiritual death and physical death. John chapter 11, verses, uh, let's just start in verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that's physically, yet shall he live spiritually. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's not talking physically. He's talking spiritually. All right. Do you believe this? Now read it again. Look what he said. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, never die. He's obviously not talking about the same kind of death. He's talking a physical death and a spiritual death. And what does the death mean? It means separated from God. And if we're not going to take the time to go there, you go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that those who, are, who die physically and are dead spiritually because they've not been forgiven of their sins and made alive in their spirit, reunited with God, they experience what the Bible calls a second death. When they come before the great white throne of judgment and then they're cast in the lake of fire. Well, how can if they're already dead, how can they die again? Well, they were separated from God. And then in Revelation chapter 20, they're brought back into his presence for the great white throne judgment. And they're removed from his presence again for eternity. The second death. Do you see it? Death simply means dead simply means a separation. If you die physically, your spirit, which lives forever, is separated from your body. If you are dead spiritually, you are just in your spirit separated from God. Your spirit is still alive. You understand what I'm saying? They've been using the wrong definition of dead. And with that understanding now, we then have to understand that we've, what we've had this laid out for us, God gives us a choice. You say, well, you know, I can't have a choice. I'm spiritually dead. Oh, no, no, no. That means you're separated from God. And as you're about to see, if you're going to enter in a right relationship with God and be reunited with God spiritually, he has to initiate it. And you're going to see that from Scripture. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. God showed this to us way, way back in the garden. All this was actually illustrated to us in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 16 and then chapter 3, 22 and 24. All right, Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 16. So the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That was a spiritual death, wasn't it? Because when he ate and Eve ate, did they die? No, their bodies began to die in the sense that eventually they would be separated from their spirits because their bodies would stop working. But they didn't die. But God said, in the day you eat of it, in that 24-hour period that you eat of it, you will die. What happened? They were spiritually now separated from God. These same people who had walked with him, now when he showed up in, the, in the, their presence, they ran. They hid. They were afraid. Their spirits were no longer in union with God. Does that mean their spirits were dead in the fact that they had no ability to respond? No, 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 no. They now were separated from God. And as you're about to see, God wanted them to be reunited. But because of their condition, they, God has to initiate the process now. Go to Genesis 3. Look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent, set, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Look closely what's going on. Did God cut the tree of life down and say, nope, no, never again can anybody eat from this tree? No. The Bible actually shows in Revelation it's still around. Even though Garden of Eden doesn't exist anymore, God's going to recreate it. A new heaven and new earth is going to be that. And the tree of life in Revelation 22 is there. Actually, it's so big it's growing on both sides of the river. 
But what did God say? He said, man can't get to this tree now on his own. He now has to come through me. God guarded it with the cherubim. It was still there. By the way, it's very interesting. These same cherubim with the flaming sword are what was sewn into the Holy of Holy, the veil on the Holy of Holies. The same cherubim, the flaming sword you see in the garden. If you do a little research, you'll find it what was drawn or sewn into the veil that was at the Holy of Holies where God was in the, in the temple. In other words, God says, I still want you to be reconnected with me, but now it's on my terms. And you can't get to me, but I will come to you. And I'll give you a choice. And when we become spiritually alive, all it is, is that our spirits are now reunited and connected with God. So are you spiritually dead apart from Christ? Yes. Are you dead in the sense that you're laying on a slab cold? No, no, that's not the definition of dead. You're just simply separated from God. Well, let's take a look at it a little more closely. Go to John chapter 6. Passages you've heard me say before, but now laying this all out, see if it doesn't make a little bit more sense. John chapter 6, verses 44 through 45. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, you see it. God says, No one can come to me. John 6, 44 and 45. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws them first. Remember, because we're separated from God and because of our sinful condition, God has to initiate this salvation process. But don't let someone tell you that God has to do it all. You have a choice. You have to decide. The Bible in the book of Hebrews says that the people that reject God are, have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. Listen, there are some who think that God's sovereignty means that Jesus only died for the people that are going to be saved and that he didn't die for everybody. How could the people who are not going to be saved ever trample on the blood of the foot of Jesus if it was never offered to them? Yeah. Folks, the Bible is very, very clear. What's happened over the years is certain people have taken a little truth here, or a little truth there, and they've just extrapolated with human logic. And they say things like, well, if man has the ability to choose, then God's not sovereign. I say, you have the wrong definition of sovereign. Secondly, they'll say, well, if Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody's going to heaven, then his death wasn't sufficient. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says his death was for everyone and is sufficient to save. And whoever receives it by faith will give it. He offers it. Well, that puts the, well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're not saved by works, but by grace through faith. Not everything we do. Believing is a work. That's something we, oh, no, 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 no. Believing is not a work. The Bible just all the way through says that this is God's work that he initiated, that he did, that he planned before creation, that he died for you before you were even born. Why you're his enemy? He's offering it to you. Who gets all the glory for this salvation? God does. All we did was say, wow, for real? Thank you. I believe it. I didn't work. It didn't because of me. But there, the problem is, is people try to say that if I even respond, that means that I did something. Oh, no, that no glory goes to Jim Johnson. All the glory goes to the Lord. I got no problem with saying, look, he did it all. And he even opened my eyes. He's even the one who gave me the ability to believe. I thank him for it. Folks, don't fall into these ditches on either end. Understand the whole of Scripture. Go to Romans 3. Look at verses 10 and 11. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We'll start in verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are, Jew, are, we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Did you catch that? Remember, your free will doesn't mean you get to choose God whenever you want. He has to offer it to you. Now, does he offer it to everybody? Because some people think that Jesus only offers it to those who are going to respond. 
Remember, we, remember John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws them. Verse 45, as it says in the prophets, what? They all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. You've heard me tell you that before. If you've had teenagers, you know there's a big difference between hearing and listening, right? They heard. That doesn't mean they listened. Same way. The Bible says, well, I can't wait to show you this one. All right. We either accept his offer or we reject it. We either receive his gracious offer or we reject it. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Verses 31 and 32. All of a sudden, a passage of scripture that's probably given you a bellyache for all these years is going to make so much more sense. Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But... The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What's Jesus saying here? Listen to what he says. He says, every sin that man commits, rape, incest, murder, homosexuality, think of all the things you think of the wickedest sins, lying, whatever. Listen, God says every one of those will be forgiven. There's only one sin God doesn't forgive. And you know what it is? It's when the Spirit of God draws you and you say no. That's the only... Remember Pharaoh hardened his heart? And how did the Bible describe it? As Allison pointed out, he sinned again and hardened his heart. Folks, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply this. When the Spirit of God calls you, you've given, been given so many opportunities to say yes. Remember, there comes a point where he says, I'm shutting the door. If you reject the call of the Spirit to salvation, that's the only sin God will not forgive. I'll forgive every other one. They're all forgiven, except this one. One sin that's not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ is the rejection of the offer to salvation by the Holy Spirit. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Go to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. Now there's a couple things in here as we start to wrap up that I really want you to not miss. I saw something in this that I'd never, ever seen before. And I can't wait to show it to you. Acts 7, verses 51 through 60. Stephen is preaching and they're about to kill him. He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always what? Resist. Resist who? Holy oh, there'll be some people to tell you that God's grace is irresistible, that if God draws you, you have to say yes. Otherwise, God's... No, 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 no. Listen, the Bible says clearly His grace is resistible. Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you... And sorry, and you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen... He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And by the way, that means he died. Listen to what, listen what, what, what he said as he was dying. He said, Lord, they've just blasphemed your Holy Spirit. Give them another chance. That's what he said. He said, you stiff-necked individuals, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. God's drawing you. He's opened it to you. He's shown it to you. He sent prophets. He sent Jesus himself. He sent us. His Spirit's drawing you. You're ignoring it. Oh, by the way, that's the one sin that God doesn't forgive. And then as he was dying, he said, Lord, don't hold this sin 
against them. In other words, yes, they're rejecting your spirit. Give them another opportunity. Isn't that amazing? Most of us would think, <laughs> yeah, you'll get yours. Uh, you're going to find out I'm right. Just a few hours. He cried out and said, give them another chance. Don't make this the last time they get the spirit offered to them. Don't hold this sin against them. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Folks, don't end up like Pharaoh. Do not harden your own heart and then have God harden it finally for you. Does God know which way you will choose? Yes, but you don't. So choose and make the right choice. And I'm going to leave you with John chapter 5. One last section of scripture. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. John chapter 5, verses 22 and following. It says, the Father judges no one. Jesus is speaking. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, listen, and believes him who sent me, you have to respond, has eternal life. He who does not come into judge, he, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What does that mean? You were separated from God. You're now connected with God for eternity. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When who? The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I thought the dead couldn't respond. Oh, no. The dead are those who are separated from God. They have been given a choice. They either reject it or, 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 or receive it. Don't let someone tell you that if you're dead, you can't do anything. No, you can do what God's given you the ability to do, and that's to say yes or no. The dead will hear and live. For as the Father has lived life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself. So I can't wait to get back next week as we look at Ephesians 2, where now Paul says to us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were separated from God. But God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive through Jesus. How did he do it? He already took care of that through his death on the cross. And he offers it to us. He pursues us. He says, please choose. Today's the day of salvation. Please respond. And when we do, we're reunited with him and we're alive spiritually. Oh, we may die physically, but we won't die because we'll continue to go on and on. Go ahead. That's right. Well, it's not that he's there in the sense that he's indwelling us, but he's he's here. He's all everywhere. He's pursuing us and offering it. So don't have anybody tell you that the sovereignty of God means that man doesn't have a choice. You do. Don't run to the other ditch that thinks I can choose whenever I want. Mm -mm. God's sovereign and his sovereignty says sometimes I'll say there's no more time. So you better respond while. He does. Now, by the way, that's not just for unbelievers. That's for us believers as well, as we've talked about. We still have choices to make whether or not we're going to be obedient to God or whether or not we're not going to be obedient to God. And that same father has his purposes and his plans. And like I said, and like you, we all know, he already knows how we're going to choose. He knows whether we're going to deny him tomorrow or whether or not we'll die for him tomorrow. But we don't. So make the right choice. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for this chance to open your word. And we've, we've run all over the scriptures, but that's good. And it's fun because the more we do, the more we realize if we're willing to take the time, a lot of these hard things that we've wrestled with become clear because the whole of your scripture has spoken to it. Lord, we've uh, gotten a little lazy over the years and we've had a tendency to take one verse and build a doctrine from it. And we'll say things like, well, my Bible says right here, Lord, help us to make sure that we're examining what it says against the whole of the book. We thank you for these opportunities to do that and to study. I pray that all of us would, would have a desire to spend more time in your word throughout the week, not just coming now or listening online. But Lord, put within us a hunger and a desire because, Lord, as we didn't have time to get into tonight, there's an element which we've already kind of touched on that 
as much as your word says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the next verse goes on and says it's you who works in us both to will or to desire and to act according to your purpose. There's this aspect, Lord, that we have to acknowledge. We don't fully understand how you, not only the initiator, but you're the one who also gives us the ability to respond. But that doesn't remove our, our choice. And it doesn't remove our responsibility for our choices. And so, Lord, help us to remain faithful to the whole of your book, to the balance between these truths that we tend to run to one side or the other. And Lord, above all, may those who don't see it like we do or those who see it in ways that are differing from us, may they know that we love them. May we not divide ourselves over this issue, but may we be faithful to know what we believe the Bible teaches and to love each other in the journey of learning your truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.